So this morning we're looking around issues of God's sovereignty and evangelism. And I want to ask the question, is God's sovereign rule over time and history a passion killer when it comes to evangelism? Does the belief that it says in Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases, does that lead us away from the urgent need to share the gospel with a needy world? And I want to say this morning that it, it can do. At a meeting of Baptist leaders in Leicester in the late 1700s, a newly appointed minister stood up to argue for the value of overseas mission. He was abruptly uh, interrupted sorry, by an older minister who said this to him, young man, sit down, you are an enthusiast. That, at that point in history meant to him like a fanatic. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting me or you. Heathen there was their word for non-believer. Thankfully, that young man, William Carey, uh, ignored the older minister and went on to found the modern missions movement in the UK. He himself went on to be a missionary in India, where he remained there, we go, there until he, he remained there until he died. But it's worth noting in that discussion that Carey basically shared the same theological convictions of those who opposed his missionary endeavours. He also believed in God's sovereignty over the world, over God's sovereignty over history. But he believed in a God that uses means, who used people to share the gospel. He wrote a ministry manifesto called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. God uses means to bring about his purposes. That was his point. And instead of his belief in God's sovereignty putting a dampener on mission, it was actually the fuel for his missionary zeal. It was his belief in a big sovereign God that led him to preach famously, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. But 200 years on, it's a lesson that we're still learning in the UK. I often wonder if all the sort of missionary-minded people ended up abroad uh, in that era, they sort of went away from the UK. Because we find the same unhelpful ideas floating around in the UK today. I almost hear word for word sometimes. Uh, when God pleases to convert the UK, he'll do it without consulting you or me. And we're encouraged to pray for revival and wait for God to do it. And it sounds pious, it sounds right. But I want you to think this through for a second. Go back to William Carey. Imagine William Carey had taken that line. You know the line of reasoning that he's got? India is a needy place. Millions of people perishing without the gospel. So here's my plan. Let's pray for God to send revival to India. And then William Carey becomes not the founder of the modern missions movement, but the founder of the stay at home and pray for God to convert the heathen society. He doesn't go to India because God hasn't sent revival there yet, so there'd be nothing to do. Paul Hinton was actually sharing the same point with us yesterday, and I didn't know he was going to do that. But it's that idea, well, it's a, it's a day of small things here, so we can't do anything. Could you imagine if that was the same with William Carey? There's not much happening in India, so there's no point in me going. There's no point in me sharing the gospel, because nothing much is happening. You get my point? We can be just as guilty as that man in Leicester of leaving to God to do 
what God has told us to do. We can pass it off as piety, I'm speaking to myself here as well. We need to pray. We must pray more, but not for God to do things without us, but for God to do things through us. Expect great things for God, attempt great things for God. So those are going to be our headings this morning. Expect great things, attempt great things. There won't be in-depth expositions of the chapters that Robert read to us. If you want that, I preached through this section of Romans back in August 2020, and the videos and audio are on the website. But firstly, for us this morning, expect great things from God, and think you mainly here of chapter 9. As a church, we believe in a sovereign God. That is the God that we're presented in Romans chapter 9, the one who created us the one who shapes us, the one who shows mercy, the one who hardens as well. And Paul really in this chapter is showing us that nobody puts God in a corner. Nobody makes demands on this God. The whole section of Romans uh, here finishes like this in Romans 12. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor, or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. What Paul is saying in this section is that we do not have a puny God, subject to the fickle whims and changing opinions of mortal man. What we have is a sovereign God. A ruler above time and space, the lord of the years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. A God who directs history, a God who works out his plans and his purposes. So Isaiah 46, remember this and stand firm, recall it to mind you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. We have, to put it lightly, a big God. But that means, then, that we can expect big things. Now that might seem a little bit of a strange point to make from Romans 9. After all, really, the chapter is prompted by the fact that God is not saving a group of people in big numbers. The Jews in Paul's day were not coming to Christ in huge numbers, certainly not the majority. But Paul's answer to that is a sovereign God who chooses Isaac over Ishmael in verse 7, who chooses Jacob over Esau in verse 11. And that was before they had done anything, good or bad. It was not based on how good they were, but on God's choice, his purpose of election, in verse 11 again. So God's word is not failing. That's really his big point in this chapter. It's doing exactly as God planned. Again, Isaiah 55. So, my, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. 
It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. His word is saving all the people he purposed it to save. It's doing what it should be doing. But aren't we now drifting back into that sort of heartless, fatalistic, when God pleases to convert people, he'll do it without consulting me or you? Not at all. The Apostle Paul is writing this. If he believed that, then he'd have stayed on the road to Damascus and prayed for revival, wouldn't he? Instead, Paul became one of the greatest missionaries this world has ever seen. Someone who shared the gospel with thousands of people. Someone who prayed and preached for people to be saved, Jew and Gentile. Paul writes in those first three verses in Romans 9, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Or Romans 10 verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is that they may be saved. Paul actually is invested in this, isn't he? He cares about this. And he didn't just pray, he preached. In every town and city he went to, he started off in the synagogue preaching to Jews. He didn't say to himself, it's a day of small things for the Jews, so I won't bother. He equally didn't say, well, God will save whomever he will, so I'm off the hook for sharing the gospel. Because God will save who he wants anyway. No, he prayed for his people. Oh, yes, he did. We wouldn't, mustn't miss that. But he, like Carey, believed in a God who uses means. People to share the gospel. And people who respond to the gospel. We have a statement as a church. It's one of our seven doctrinal distinctives. It says this. We believe in God's sovereignty in all things, but not in a way that negates human responsibility. In other words, what's that, what that's saying is that we are not puppets. We're not mere actors in a play. As human beings, we make real choices and we're held accountable for them. Someone in this passage here tries to wriggle out of this. So Romans 9, 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Do you see there, he's sort of trying to blame God for the fact that he's not believing. But there's no blaming God for our rejection of him. We are responsible before God for our choices and actions. And that means, firstly, that we must respond to the gospel. There may be some here this morning who've never done that. Have you ever put your trust in Jesus for yourself? If not, you need to turn to God for mercy. Turn aside from your works, good or bad, and put your trust in Christ alone to save you from the wrath to come. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So we must respond to the gospel. But secondly as well, we must also preach the gospel. Share it, proclaim it, herald it, whatever word you want to choose. Gossip it we had yesterday. We are responsible for doing that. 
God's sovereignty is not an excuse for not sharing Christ. We cannot change hearts. Only God can do that. But we can preach the gospel. But God will not force us to do it against our will. That's not how God's sovereignty works. God's sovereignty is much bigger. He doesn't make us puppets. He doesn't need to. Instead, he works through the decisions that we make. So we must choose to do this. Think of Joseph and his brothers. After all that had taken place, Joseph says this of them. Genesis 50, uh, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do you see there that God didn't work against the will of the brothers? They did what they wanted to do. They sold their brother. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God didn't make his brothers puppets. They were acting according to their own will. But God still worked out his purposes through their actions. I could equally take you to the writing of the Bible, written by men in their own style, choosing their own words. And yet it is the word of God, every single word of it. I could equally take you to the cross. Men and women acting with their own motives, jealousy, greed, cowardice. Yet according to Acts 2.22 and several thousand years of prophecy, this was an act of God according to his own plan. God does amazing things. And his sovereignty is so big, he even uses our wills, our own decisions to bring it about. And that includes our evangelism, our sharing the gospel. And just as Joseph's brothers were responsible for their actions, just as Judas and Pilate and Herod are responsible for their actions, so we too are responsible for our own actions and decisions, whether to share the gospel or to not share the gospel. Speaking of his ministry and teaching, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. Here we go. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. Sorry. Do you see Paul's uh, point there? Our ministry matters. Our salvation doesn't depend on it, but we are accountable for our ministry here on earth. Our sovereign God has set us to work and he expects us to be doing it. And we are responsible for how we do it. The results, again, as we were hearing yesterday, are not our responsibility. They lay in the hands of a sovereign God. But the work of preaching and teaching the gospel, that's ours to do. And so our second point, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God 
the tenth great things for God. One of the first ever Bible studies I led as a teenager was on Romans 10. I got teased because one of the first things that I said was one of the amazing things about Romans 10 is it comes after Romans 9. And I remember I'd just gone to university and it was like, wow, they teach you some amazing things at university. You can count. 10 comes after 9. But I stand by that comment because what we see here really is uh, Romans 9 is a classic chapter on the sovereignty of God, but it's followed by Romans 10, which is a classic passage on evangelism. In one sense, it's the weirdest placement you can think of, or is it? I know some of us here get very enthused by Romans 9, but if that's true, then we need to be equally enthused by Romans 10. We know there are dangers when we take things out of context. The context of Romans 9 is that it's followed by Romans 10. And the context of Romans 10, if you're a big fan of Romans 10, is that it's preceded by Romans 9. Scripture interprets scripture. And Romans 10 encourages us to get on with preaching the gospel. It's easy to miss, but really there's a sort of contrast between the chapters. So in verses 11 to 13, the word all is used four times in uh, just those few verses. So it really reads like this, Romans uh, 10, 11. For scripture says, all who believe in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's all the same word in the original language. All who call on the Lord Jesus will be saved. All who believe in him will not be put to shame. So Paul's perspective from this is that we get on preaching the gospel to all. And it's not a complicated, obscure thing that we're proclaiming. Paul here alludes in this passage to Deuteronomy, where the people are being taught about God's word. And there it's saying that you don't have to ascend up to heaven to get it. You don't have to go down in a submarine, down into the depths to go find it. The word of God is near to you. God has given it to you. It's right there. What you need to do is believe it and confess it. So Romans 10 verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it's that simple. A child can do that. Yes, we all want to add the caveats, don't we? It's more than just saying the words, well, yes, of course. Jesus is Lord is a summary of the big truths of the gospel about Jesus, well, yes. If you're mute, then you'd have to use your hands to confess rather than your mouth, well, yes. But that's sort of to miss the point here. His point is that this is not something hard, humanly speaking. It's something that all can do. So we need to get on with sharing the message. Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him him on whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. In other words, God uses means. 
all who call on Jesus will be saved, but they can't call on Jesus to be saved if they don't believe in him. And they can't believe in him if someone, in someone that they've never heard of. And they can't hear about him without someone telling them. And they can't go telling people about him in so many places without people being sent there in the first place. Really, it's talking about support of people to do this, uh, as, they, as well as doing it yourself. If Romans 8 gives us a golden chain of election, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified, then Romans 10 gives us a golden chain of evangelism. We send and preach. They hear, believe, call, and are saved. But that doesn't happen without us sending and preaching. Now again, I know that some of you will be thinking about those exceptions. Well, what about the dreams in the Middle East when it doesn't seem that people are used? Well, from what I hear, those dreams are like the dreams in the book of Acts. Paul is sent to Ananias. Cornelius is sent to Peter. It's not done without the involvement of people. It's actually done through people. If we sit around waiting for dreams, then actually we're back to that man in Leicester. When God pleases to convert people, he'll do it without consulting me or you. Sorry, there's somebody just wandering around in the foyer. Can somebody just go have a look and check, check what's going on? It's okay, Calvin, you sit down. What we should be doing in the light of all this is attempting great things for God, both as individuals and as a church. To attempt great things for God without expecting them from God is pride and arrogance. But to expect great things from God without attempting great things for God is disobedience and faithlessness. I'm not saying that we all need to up sticks and go up to China or Africa or India. But in one sense, shouldn't we be willing to? If that's what God calls us to do. And if we'd be willing to go to China, then shouldn't we be willing to talk to the person next door? To our co-worker? To our postman? To our unsafe family member? To all who will listen? <coughs> If God hasn't called you to India, it's because he's got things for you to do here, at home. Great things. We all long, don't we, to be part of something larger than ourselves, to have purpose and direction. What greater than the task of proclaiming the glories and wonder of Christ, of his death on the cross for sinners, of his resurrection, of the offer of free pardon for all who will believe. We have his command, don't we? We have his direction. We have his commission. Matthew 28, verses 19, uh, 18 onwards. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And it's a command that comes with a promise. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ is with us. Do you feel unequipped to do it? Well, God has equipped us. We were hearing about this yesterday, Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you feel afraid to share the gospel? Well, God bids us not fear. 
For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Do you not know what to say? We'll do a John and a Peter in Acts. Tell them what you have seen and heard and experienced of Christ. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. What great things could you attempt for the sovereign God? If you aim low, you'll hit it every time. So why not aim high? Let the confidence we have of a sovereign God fuel your evangelistic zeal. This is how Carey ended his missionary manifesto. I'll put it up the screen so you can read along. We are exhorted to lay up treasure in heaven where neither wrath nor rust do corrupt, nor thieves break in and steal. It is also declared that whatever a man sows, that she also reap. These scriptures teach us that the enjoyments of the life to come bear a near relation to that which is now, a relation similar to that of the harvest, harvest and the seed. It is true all the reward is of mere grace, but it is nevertheless encouraging. What a treasure! What a harvest must await such characters as the Apostle Paul, John Eliot, and David Brenard and others who have given themselves wholly to the work of the Lord. What a heaven it will be to see the many myriads of poor heathens of Britain amongst the rest who by their labours have been brought to the knowledge of God. Surely a crown of rejoicing like this is worthy aspiring to. Surely it is worthwhile to lay ourselves out with all our might in promoting the cause and the kingdom of Christ. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are a sovereign God. Father, thank you that you hold the world in your hands, that the nations are just a drop in a bucket. Father, thank you that you are able to bring the gospel to the world through people. So, Father, help us to be willing. Help us to be the means that you use to bring the gospel to our friends, to our family, to our neighbours, to all who will listen. Father, we find it scary. So, Father, give us the confidence. Father, we don't know what to say. Father, give us the words that in all things you might get the glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to finish with a classic missionary hymn, Facing a Task.